Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I am joined by Chef John Hauman. He is the executive chef over at Emmett's Cafe here in Columbus, Ohio. They have two locations, one downtown in the brewery district, which is the one that first opened, and then one in what's called the open air. It's off Neal Ave. It used to be an old school it got converted into kind of some restaurants and shops. So Emmett's is there. The Wolf's Ridge group has Understory, which is a cocktail bar there. And there's a couple other things and there's some trails back there too as well. Had the chance to actually to check out the open air facility for the first time. They've been open for about a year and it's really bright, really spacious. Kind of gives you that kind of European cafe feel just pretty much what they were going for. And kind of same deal with the brewery district location, which is a lot smaller, it's a little bit more compact, but they also have a backyard kind of area, patio area too, for the summertime when the weather's nice. So that can be nice. But John's had a interesting career. It's a lot of kind of what ifs in there. You know, if this didn't happen, this could have happened kind of deal, which I think we all have when we kind of look back on our careers or our lives or anything like that. And now he's here in Columbus, you know, originally kind of from up north in the Toledo area, but wound up here, has worked here for a number of years, different restaurants. He's worked and been executive chef, New Albany Country Club. He's worked out there too as well. We have a few alumni uh, that have spent some time there. Just a handful of different restaurants, you know, helped with Ampersand and Asterix Supper Clubs, uh, which is downtown in the short north respectively. And then also up in Westerville with Meg Ada and Josh Cook and them. And we get into that and just kind of how he wound up at Emmett's and what they've been doing and what they have, you know, kind of planned for the future and what he plans to kind of get himself into as well. He also spent time working at the Barrington School. Uh, His wife actually still works there in their kitchen. But the Barrington School is a daycare and they have a food program for the kids there. We haven't had anybody on who's done any extensive work cooking for kids outside of probably their own. So that was an interesting aspect to touch on too as well. Just what all goes into cooking for children, meal prep, your budgeting, all that stuff. Uh, So that was super fascinating to kind of get into the details of what all goes into doing that. And that's probably one of the toughest jobs you could ever have as a chef. Which is probably also like the most frustrating, but also the most rewarding um, when you actually do get it right and the kids love like what you're cooking and you fit everything within the budget and stuff too as well. Kind of one of those things that people don't think about. Not something I ever thought about until I wound up having a kid myself and, you know, going through the daycare process and all that too. So you can follow John on Instagram. His handle is at Chef John, J-O-N, Hauman, H-A-U-M-A-N. No spaces or gaps or underscores or anything. It's all just one word. And you can also follow Emmett's Cafe on Instagram. It's just at Emmett's Cafe. And that covers both their locations. They don't have separate accounts for each location or anything like that. You can follow us on Instagram too as well, at SpoonMob. We're on Twitter, Facebook, all the other social medias, either SpoonMob or SpoonMob1 is the handle. Make sure to check out our website, SpoonMob.com. We have all the profiles up for everybody who's been a guest, uh, any updates that they've had since they've come on the podcast links to all the episodes, food photos for every place that they've worked, all that stuff is up there so you can find all that. We also have a contact portal on the website. You can write in questions, comments, feedback. If uh, there's a question you ever wanted to ask a chef or sommelier restaurant owner, feel free to write it in. We'll incorporate it in the episode upcoming that best fits with that guest and we'll let you know what episode that's going to be featured on that way you're kind of a part of the podcast Uh, it's just another little thing that we like to incorporate but also make sure to follow subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from we're on all the platforms apple spotify youtube google stitcher the stuff hits youtube a week later after it hits all the podcast apps make sure you follow or subscribe whatever button that platform uses that way all the new episodes drop straight into your feed we do have some mini episodes mini update episodes coming up handful of those so it won't be a 
another one next week, but the week after, and it'll be for like two or three consecutive weeks. Um, we'll have two or three episodes right in a row. So we'll be doing kind of Tuesday, Thursdays uh, for a handful of weeks here, which is some update episodes that we have coming out, people coming back on, talking about new concepts, kind of what they're doing, uh, new ventures and everything like that. So we want to help support them and make sure we touch base with them on whenever they have something new coming out. Cause you know, that's kind of one of the goals of the platform is to keep supporting everybody who's come on to help support us. So uh, we do that different ways, uh, them, you know, being able to come back on whenever they want, always an open invitation. And then also, you know, we try and share as much as we can from their Instagram updates too, as well through our uh, story channel on our Instagram page as well. Without any further delays, here's my conversation with Chef John Hellman, the executive chef at Emmett's Cafe here in Columbus, Ohio. Cool. Thanks again for coming on, uh, taking some time out of your Valentine's Day is when we're recording this. So we've been patronizing Emmett since it first opened. I remember the press release from when it was coming out. We lived right around the corner for a decent amount of time in the brewery district, so it's close by. Like my wife, she's mentioned the other day that uh, she pretty much went like at least once a week, especially over the course of her pregnancy, grabbing food before she was going to work. I actually just got the chance to go to the open air location for the first time. And we got some food there the other day. So beautiful space, really open, the windows in front and everything. And the menu is obviously bigger there than the brewery district uh, location. A few different options too as well. Uh, it was packed. Everybody's kind of in line looking around like, all right, is that table going to open? Is that table going to open? Uh, which is great to see. But, you know, I want to get into, you know, how you wound up at Emmett's and everything you got going on there. But before we do, I always start at the beginning with everybody. So how did you kind of first get involved with cooking and hospitality? Was it something you were always interested in? Was it, you know, your family owned a restaurant? Like how did that kind of all materialize for you? a lot of different aspects, but I would say it's kind of in the lifeblood. Growing up, my mom was a HR and payroll manager for a giant hospitality firm up in Northwest Ohio, Toledo, Michigan area. I always grew up at the big boy, the Ralphies, the Holiday Inn, just kind of going in and out of the kitchens, kind of just being like a fly in the wall ever since I could walk. And it just always intrigued me. My culinary journey kind of went all over the place after that. Being up in Toledo, not the most well-off family, always had to work for what I got. So it was starting very young at one of the big boys, then moving to Texas and doing the same thing. I think in high school, I was in Pizza Hut all four years of of cooking throughout high school. And then I just kind of dropped off, went to college, but then needed money. So I went diving right back in. And instead of finishing college, I just fell in love with the the family, the atmosphere, the long hours, the crap pay, the long nights, the alcohol, the fun. It just kind of drew me in. That's kind of how it started. In college, I kind of dropped out and went to culinary school, uh, went to Pittsburgh for that. I went to Pennsylvania Culinary Institute, Le Cordon Bleu, and I didn't learn much that I didn't already learn going through the the restaurants that I was in, but it kind of set me on a path of, I need to do this more professionally instead of just kind of falling in love with kind of what cooking was about, like the fast pace, the crazy nights. It just kind of put me in a focus that this is really what I love. And this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I couldn't see anything else. So my internship for that took me to Florida. I was at a big, large scale resort that just got I think demolished with the hurricane, but uh, it uh, was Sanibel Harbor Resort and Spa. Moved at every aspect of the place and just kind of 
learned all I could about systems and big places like that. This whole time I had a girlfriend and she was working for Gordon Ramsay straight out of culinary school. She was on the other side of Florida. They needed help. That was my first kind of high profile job that I learned more at that restaurant, I would say, than I did all of culinary school. I learned what torsions were. I learned different products, techniques, styles, the best quality food you could work with, get your hands on, and how to respect it. And that really kind of changed my viewpoint on food. And I started working on knowledge. They're not going to see in this podcast, but I pretty much have every cookbook under the sun and have traveled all over the world just to, to learn about food. The biggest passion I have is learning everything I can about all food in general. In Texas, me and my girlfriend got pregnant and we needed some money and we were running out of it. So we we moved up to Ohio. Her family's from Dayton. My family's from Toledo, like I said. So it was kind of like Columbus was that central meaning point. And when I first got here, um, there's a guy kind of small time. His name was Kent Peters, offered me an executive chef job at 20 years old at Black Creek Bistro. And I kind of dove right into that farm to table, whatever he was trying to do over there, which it just kind of got pieced together. And then with knowing that we had a kid on the way, it wasn't really as sustainable of a job, didn't have health insurance. It didn't have anything that I needed. And my wife didn't have a job. I took that leave and went to North Star. It was a popular place in Columbus. It was happening and they had all the benefits and the culture that you know, people look for. Um, so I went over there and ended up helping opening up the East and North Star. And I did that for about five years. Um, it gave me the time to kind of learn more about culture and systems. And it also, they like you to have a balance in life. So it's, I got to go experience certain things and meet certain people. And when it was my time and I realized that I didn't like answering to the powers that be because I'm a chef and that's kind of not in our wheelhouse. I moved on and I opened up a pizza shop called Z Pizza with my friend. It's a franchise. We just wanted to own something and like get that experience. So we're like, we'll franchise something out, just give it a go, lead a staff, see the other aspect I haven't really seen. And we did that for a few years. It was cool, but I miss fine dining. And I was just like making pizza. North Star is good, but it's, it wasn't like my style. So then I went to New Albany Country Club and I was the chef de cuisine there for a few years. Got to work with Kent Rigsby, which was a main staple in Columbus for a while. And it was fun. I got to work with ingredients again. I got to do my food. I got to be creative. It also gave me the time to make connections and do a lot of private parties and things that I'm passionate about. Like if I want to do Japanese food or if I want to do something else, I could contact a guest or a member and I could do a private dinner and like showcase the skills that I've learned over 20 years in this industry. So it was a good time. And that's the first, like, I'd say 15 years of my culinary journey. Like you mentioned, you start out kind of fast food joint, fast casual, whatever. You went up in Texas for a little bit and, and come back. When you go to the University of Toledo, I think you went for history and marketing, right? So what were you thinking of going to be before you ultimately decided to go to culinary school? I wanted to be a basketball coach and I wanted to be the history teacher. Before food, that was like my dream. As a athlete, I played AAU basketball. I had scholarships, all kinds of stuff. I blew up my knee in high school. I wanted to be that teacher and coach that you see in high school level, which is kind of my dream besides food because I love history and I love basketball. So 
What led to giving up on that dream and then pursuing the dream of becoming a chef? School. Realizing that to be at the high school level, I had to have not just one degree, but multiple and also a certificate. And it just seemed like a long process of things that I wasn't amped about. I didn't get to be like in the restaurant just learning because it's being in a restaurant is school. A lot of people don't realize that. Like for us in the industry, yeah, you could get a fancy CIA degree or Le Cordon Bleu degree and it's cool. But the real knowledge and the real learning happens in the restaurant. And I would rather do my learning that way than sit with a bunch of weirdos and not have fun. You go to the Le Cordon Bleu school in Pittsburgh. They're no longer around. I've they got bought and merged and it's been renamed and stuff since then. But did you purposely go to that school in that location? Or, you know, you got Chicago, obviously the CIA is you know, super expensive and, and all that stuff too. But, you know, was it just mainly that was the one that kind of fit within your financial budget and that's why you went there? Or what was the reasoning for going to Pittsburgh and, and that school specifically? I kind of looked at the top ones in the country. La Cordon Bleu was the same price as the CIA. I mean, I'm still paying for it. It's 60 grand for a year and a half. It's just it's ridiculous. It was a year and a half instead of two and a half years, which is the CIA. So that was just kind of my basis. And it was closer to home. So if I didn't succeed, I could always drive back to my hundred and some relatives in good old Toledo, Ohio. But that's why I picked Pittsburgh and that program. And I also visited both schools. And I just kind of thought that Pittsburgh was a little less pretentious. And I kind of like that. I worked since I was little and I like the working class and it was uh, more my speed. Didn't think at that time I fit in with uh, the other crowd. <laughs> Did you work while you were in school or was it just strictly school? I was a bartender and manager at the Bar Louie at Station Square. And then I also did stand-up comedy at the Funny Bone at Station Square. It was super fun. Kind of went hand in hand with the whole culinary thing because, you know, sometimes kitchens get a little rowdy and a little fun. So it was an outlet to get some of that out. I also worked at the Sonoma Grill, which is down the street from the school. It's kind of like a run-of-the-mill steak and seafood place. It wasn't like anything crazy. They weren't doing anything special. I think there was a Caesar salad on the menu. So it was where people go to have a lunch. The, out of the four career paths that you were kind of at one point playing around with is stand-up comedian, which makes no money <laughs> until you make it big. Athlete, which makes no money until you make it big. Teachers, which don't make any real big money. And chef, which also doesn't really pay well until maybe you open your own thing. And even then, it's, you know, you're constantly always feel like you're probably chasing it from behind financially. So money wasn't the reason that you were doing it for is because you like doing it. And that's kind of a, an important part of it too. But based on, you know, your experience with culinary school, somebody in your kitchen now, you know, they're like, Hey, I want to become a you know chef owner of a restaurant one day, you know, own my own place. Should I go to culinary school? What would you tell them? It's not necessary. Even in non big food cities, I just culinary school, you get what you put into it. That's what I'll tell everybody. You could skate through culinary school, spend the 60 grand or whatever it is. And if you don't put yourself in there and you don't put yourself forward, you're not going to get anything out of it. You're just that kid that shows up to interview and thinks he's getting a job at an X amount an hour because he's got a culinary degree, which I can tell you from a guy who hires people, I don't really care about that. But if you do put the effort in and you do try to learn, it's valuable. It will teach you the basics. It will teach you knife skills. It will teach you 
profit and loss statements. It will teach you uh, basic flavor combinations. It will teach you if you have no basis, it will give you a good idea. But I would recommend if you do go to culinary school, work in a restaurant while you're doing it. When you wind up in Florida at that resort and you move down there, looking back on that time period, because you mentioned that you learned a lot about systems and organization, is that kind of the point that a lot of people coming up through the industry miss? Because you know, you're working in restaurants, but even if you're working for super famous chefs or super talented chefs, trying to learn the management side of things always seems to be something that people don't know they need until they kind of almost thrown into that in a way. The people that I, we've had on the podcast, like they're like, oh, once I learned like the management and the system aspect is like that changed the way I thought about everything. Is that kind of the thing it seems like for most people where it's like, until you have that, like you don't really understand almost everything that is and can be in a kitchen? You got different kinds of chefs out there. Sometimes learning those systems aren't learned and aren't a priority in those some chefs' lives until they have to, like they're thrown against a wall. Because like there's a certain echelon, we could all be sous chefs making X amount of dollars and have not as much responsibility, but to move to the next level, you have to learn the systems. You have to learn how to balance everything. I wish I would have, if I could tell anybody that it's to learn that stuff before you get to a point where you can't move any higher before you learn that stuff, because it is important as much as the creativity side is grabbing some tweezers, line cooking, whatever it may be. All of it's important when you, you want to make it a career as a chef, anybody with natural talent and cooking can cook, but the ones that are successful are consistent and can do everything in a kitchen, not just make things look pretty. When you wind up at cello, the Gordon Ramsay restaurant there in Florida, you said that kind of changed, you know, the way you got exposed to a bunch of different ingredients and everything. But with a celebrity property like that, how often are they actually there? There were two chefs for that restaurant. So Gordon's name's on the door. So is Angela Hartnett, one of his protégés. She's almost equally as famous in Britain. They came, they rotated. And it was every three to six months. So they weren't there a lot. Our head chef was, his name was Chef Chris Eagle. He was a Star Chef Award winner and a James Beard Award winner in Florida. He was our our main guy. That's the guy we saw all the time. But the celebrity chefs, they didn't have to be around. The vetting process for working there alone, it's a bunch of people that know what they're doing, especially at that caliber of food. There's a certain level of trust that you have to do. Like I worked three days without pay, 14 hours a day just to try out before I even got a, like I could attempt to slice prosciutto and cut melon to order for little snacks on a table. That was my first job, but I had to like learn and soak everything in for three days before I could even use the prosciutto slicer. So. Was that because there was a lot of other people that were vying for that position or was that just kind of their screening process? Because there's a couple different schools of thought where they could have, you know, that three day screening process to see like, well, let's see if he comes back all three days. Like he might, you know, not, or you know, they're trying to figure out, can he do the job or how do you fit within the restaurant? But I mean, you're also vetting them too at the same time where it's like, is anybody in here like a giant asshole that I don't want to deal with? <laughs> like, So it's kind of vice versa, but did you ever pick up on like what their reasoning was for that lengthy kind of screening process? I think it was just their, their process because the people that were already there 
were all from the company already. Three of them were from London. Two of them are from Spain. Like they're all from all over and they're good at what they do. And they're already a team that's been working together for years. So I think for me to join that team and for my ex-wife to join this team, the vetting process was just a little more intense because they're just, you got to be one of those trusted people and you've got to be the caliber person that they want. And it also shows in that caliber kitchen that you're willing to stick around and put up with what it is because it's it is very demanding we got in at seven in the morning we left at one in the morning and that was six days a week and it was all for the striving to find the best food make the best food best service and they just want to see if you're up for the challenge because it's a different world now than it was back then back then that was kind of the mentality of the kitchen sacrifice balls of the wall when gordon or angela pops in for the rotation visit is it like school when like the difference between your teacher and then your substitute teacher, like do things like tighten up and like, everybody's like, Hey, hey, hey tonight we're going to like completely clean, scrub down the, the kitchen or normally you probably do that anyways, but something like that where you're like, we're doing all this extra stuff again. All right. Somebody's coming like in the next two days they are going to show up. So we have to like make everything look a little bit extra. No extra stuff. We all just wanted to stand out. Cause that's how like in that company, Gordon Ramsey's company, at the time when I was there, he had so many restaurants all over the world, Dubai, they're about to open up in Dubai. And we were all just kind of like, maybe if we make a, like a standout, maybe we'll be the sous chef at Gordon Ramsay, Dubai, like let's step up our game. But it was never like nothing extra, making sure you don't mess up. Everybody's a nice guy, but when you're that quality of chef or that caliber of chef, you start messing things up around them, then your lifespan's shorter. Did anybody ever get that, you know, sous chef in Dubai or sous chef at the next restaurant out of that group? Until family circumstances got us to come to Ohio, I that was my trajectory. I was going to be moving around as like the traveling sous chef. My culinary journey kind of took a, a quick left when I knew I was going to be a dad. End up losing that child, but I, I would have done things differently if I didn't have kids. I would have traveled the United States, staging every place I could. I would have done, traveled more. I would have learned more. I would have been in more high profile places because those places take up 80 hours of your week. As a father or a family man, you can't dedicate your 80 hours a week. Probably why my first marriage fit. You kind of reach a fork in the road and you kind of have to make a decision, but you can drive yourself crazy if you look back through everything and try and pick out different pinpoints where you should have done something different. I'm good where I'm at. I've done it my way. Proud to tell my kids I did it that way. And I'm proud of what I've done in Columbus, kind of staying in the shadows, but still making an impact and doing things the way I wanted to, especially now with Emmett's. Super proud of the future that I could create for a lot of people. So I wouldn't have done it any other way. When you wind up here, you know, and you get your first executive chef job at Black Creek Bistro, what was the hardest part about being an executive chef for the first time? for you being 20 not knowing it's funny because you asked that and we talked about knowing the systems and everything i had no idea i was a sous chef for gordon ramsay for a year i I didn't learn anything like i didn't know the numbers i didn't do any of that stuff i just worked on a line and i made sure everybody's stations were set up and the food looked great that's what i did so like being an executive chef at 20 21 not knowing anything that was probably the hardest thing especially for someone like kent who like he would just show up with 350 pounds of rhubarb from his farm and be like, yo, 
make something out of this and like not having any like he didn't have quickbooks or anything so it's trying to find a way to pay for things and do things and i there's no system in place so trying to change that with learn on the fly was probably the most challenging thing about that and that's kind of why i was like maybe i need to take a step back think about this before i do something the wrong way so then like you mentioned you wind up at north star for like five years you know working there aside from you know they've had a couple blips i think recently negative publicity which really isn't that negative it's just but by and large like that's always been a great place to work you know like you said work-life balance is a big deal uh, to that company too as well and then you start a pizza franchise like you mentioned, you wanted to own something. Do you guys still have the pizza franchise or that's gone? Me and my friend Cynthia owned the one in um, New Albany, Gahanna area. And then there was another owner who owned three others in Columbus. And we kind of merged and was a team. We just shut them all down. We're just breaking even. The corporate franchise wanted to change some things with the ingredients and stuff. And it just didn't sit well with us who started an organic pizzas company because we cared about ingredients of pizza it was just time to let it go so was that parent company like was it always an organic pizza company or was that like what you guys kind of created within that franchise part of it it was the original of it was we're going to cater to gluten-free we're going to be organic we're going to be transparent with the kind of ingredients we put on our pizza it's just a little ahead of its time back then we were fighting with donato's and messies and all that and pizza hadn't really erupted yet like it has lately so we're just a little ahead of our time are they still around the parent company z pizza i haven't I haven't checked to tell you the truth i haven't there was 110 of them in california and that's where they came it was the executives of california pizza kitchen half of them broke off because they wanted to create a better company and then they created z pizza and then we just brought it to columbus it's do you think it worked now yeah, I think so. Yeah. I'm fortunate enough. I thought that the culinary scene wouldn't change much in Columbus. You know, I've always joked around with no matter how much money this city has, which has a ton, it will always just be ranch dressing and oversized menus. But it has changed a lot. And I've been fortunate to see that. And I think it would last now for sure. So when you wind up at the New Albany Country Club, Rigsby's was a restaurant downtown that was kind of one of, or if not the restaurant. And then you know he winds up working there for a bit too. And you kind of mentioned that was why you wanted to work there. But did you have to go through any sort of staging or application process to be there with him? Or was it just, you know, we're always kind of looking for people because it's a country club? I was taking a step back after I closed down the shops, the pizza shops. I did some work for an organic daycare here in town called Barrington Schools. Became really good friends with them. And I actually did that as the full-time job is like be a chef for them and like help with menus and stuff like that. Out of the blue, a friend calls me and says he needs a part-time cook at the New Albany Country Club. Do you want to get back into it? And I said, sure. So I started just on the line part-time and it's chef Patrick. He has Pat and Gracie's now. He was the executive sous chef. Then he wanted me to just like, Hey, can you just, and I was like, sure. And then six months later, I'm who I am. <laughs> I was like, I just took over. So he ended up leaving and I took the job and took it more serious, started doing my food again. So it was real kind of a fun transition. We've had a couple people on that have worked at country clubs 
And they've all kind of said that it's a pretty underrated gig. You get to work with great ingredients. You have work-life balance. Was that your experience? For the most part, yeah. The work-life balance, I didn't have that as much just because I'd always been a firm believer, work for the job you want, not the job you have. Tend to go a little overboard and am the first one there and the last one to leave. It's just a mentality trait. Thank you, Kobe, for teaching me that. But it was overall good. I wouldn't say anything bad. I'm just not a political kind of guy. I'm kind of a rough around the edges, tell it how I see it kind of thing. And I would say that's the only part of the job I wasn't maneuver as well. Any country clubs that way. You got your club politics and it's just not really my jam. Was that the biggest challenge then of working at a country club for you was the, you got the legacy members and then you got the members that show up one time and then the members that show up with their wives or whatever. And you kind of have to. The money dictates what you have to do sometimes. That was the only tough part of the job. The rest was cool. I mean, I got to work with great ingredients like the other chefs have said. I mean, we still had to work on a budget, but for the most part, it was like a pirate ship. Every day was different. At New Albany, you have, so there's the main hotline, three kitchens in total. So there's the banquet kitchen, there's the kitchen that services like the pool, little a la carte things, and then there's the main dining room kitchen. And then that had two aspects. So we had a private adults only kind of area. And then we had like a casual fast dining area. It's cool because like I got to do something different almost every day. My ex-wife one Sunday, which was super awesome. It was one of the funnest things I've ever done at the club. And then also holidays at the club was real fun. Like having, I was the turkey guy. So I got to stay up for 24 hours to 32 hours. And I cooked 175 turkeys in every oven in the whole entire facility, which was, I don't know how many people can say they cooked turkeys for 24 hours in like seven different ovens. It was fun. I almost didn't want to leave, but a friend called me up and I had to move on. Do you think more people coming up through the industry should spend some time at like a country club if they can? I think country clubs and resorts or big hotels, I think they should. You get tons of experience with many different cuisine types, fast, casual, fine dining. Like You just kind of get thrown into a whole different mix. Country clubs are unique too because you have just these high line members that you have to cater to and you have to have a service like you would be, I wouldn't say Michelin star, but like you have like the steps of service for like the the wait staff at New Albany Country Club. If you're in the the fine dining area of that club, I mean, you got your table crummers, you got whole wine service, you have to have knowledge of the menu. It's crazy. So yeah, I, I would recommend that at some point so when you were at the Barrington School, kind of before you wound up at the country club, you mentioned that you were doing menu planning and stuff like that. How hard is that to do menu planning for essentially kids? It's tough. You got to also balance with state requirements because at schools, they have to have a certain amount of this, that, this, and that. And it was tough. It's also, I think, underrated. There's not many people like my wife currently works for Barrington and she's the chef at the biggest location and she's definitely underrated because she cooks for 170 kids three times a day before she comes home and uh, planning it, cutting it up to the right proper sizes. It teaches you a lot about the serve safe mentality of things that a lot of chefs overlook a requirement in Ohio. So it's it teaches you a lot. And then just nutrition. I didn't really, in my culinary journey, go out specifically wanting to cook food that feeds a certain part of you (laughs) 
like I didn't nutrition was like the furthest thing in my mind when it came to like cooking a Michelin star dish. Like it's not, that's not what I think about. I think about respecting my ingredient. I think about bringing the flavors that I want to bring. It isn't about how you cook it. So you get the most nutritional value out of it. That was a learning curve and I enjoyed it quite a bit actually. How like frustrating is it when like, you know, you put something on the menu and then like (laughs) the kids are like, nah, I don't want that. Especially like you having a chef's meeting with like, I was probably the first ever professional chef for like the school, the rest of them kind of, they know how to cook or whatever, but they just like, when I'm proposing that we make like a biscuit from scratch or something, they're just like, fuck this guy. Like what? these are kids. Like, what are we doing? But on hindsight, it is frustrating when the kids don't eat it. But also, uh, I don't know, my wife could probably say it when you walk into a room and there's a bunch of little kids eating your food and they think you're the coolest fucking dude in the world. It like lights you up. Like there's no feeling like I could walk out in the dining room at Emmett's or wherever I've been a chef and like, like, Hey chef, good dish or whatever. But like when 10 little kids are like, chef, John, you're the greatest. It's like, yes, like, thank you. And you guys are awesome. It just fills you with a different kind of joy. It's probably the most honest, raw feedback that you would ever get from anyone with your food because there's no filter. And they're just like, no, I don't like this. Like, I don't want to eat this or they like really like it. I don't know if anybody ever do it, but there should be a cooking show where your judges are either kids or pregnant women should be the judges. Because I remember my wife was pregnant and there would just be stuff and she would just be like, I don't want this. And it's just finding like what she would even like want at that time, just depending on the day, that's just jumping the first hurdle. Then it's like, is this even good? Like then you have to get into that whole hurdle too as well. So it's just kind of wild. Kids and pregnant ladies too. It's, there's a lot of texture. Like it has to do a lot with texture and it's, uh, it's difficult (laughs) for sure, but it is so rewarding. And I think your show would be number one on Netflix for sure. If they can do, uh, I just watched it like a big brother version of top chef on netflix if they could do that we could have like a a pregnant lady and uh little kids judging cooking competition for sure when you're doing the stuff at the barrington school i don't know if you know the name dan gusty he worked at like noma and then he started this company brigade and he was doing stuff i think it was for the baltimore school system and he was on a podcast a while back and he was talking it was pretty interesting but did you have to work out of like a set budget per meal kind of thing so like you're building your menu around like we can spend three dollars and fifty cents per meal or whatever it is i'm just throwing that number out there roughly but was that kind of how you had to create the menu or was it more like you were talking about like the safe practices and stuff you had to kind of start there first or nutrition or like where did you have to kind of start to build the menu and the dishes before you even get into the part where is a kid even going to like this I had a base food cost I had to, like we had to work with. So it's, you know, 7% or lower, which is just crazy, but tuitions at schools are high. So 7% of was what I had to work with. And then I, once I come up with a menu, I source the ingredients and kind of just, will these match kind of what I'm looking at? Just rough guesstimate. And if so, we just move on and just hope for the best. And if it didn't match it, then I'd have to cut things as the year progressed or weeks progressed that seven percent number ballpark like what are you working with compared to a restaurant budget is it similar is it less it's a little less but there's other aspects when it comes to the school you have so many aspects at a restaurant you just have the food you know your overhead 
like traditional 26% to 30% is what you want in a restaurant, but here the 7%. And you also got to realize that it's over all the tuition of all the school. So it, it ends up being a decent amount you can work with. I mean, it isn't easy to feed 160 kids and uh, 7% for sure. I will say that that company, Barrington Schools, they do a great job at getting the kids proper food that they deserve. And, you know, good distributors getting Snowville milk. Like every kid has Snowville milk every day and Snowville yogurt. Like it's, it's impressive that they're still able to function, especially with how prices have gone lately. <laughs> yeah. And not even that. My wife was looking around at daycares, which were still on a waiting list, even, you know, coming up on nine months at this point. A lot of them, and we have friends that have, you know, kids in daycares and stuff. And you look at the food program to say that some places have a food program is amazing because so many don't. Our one friend, you know, I remember the one time we were talking to her and she's like, oh yeah, she had, you know, they're like crackers and Oreos and da, 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 da. And you're just kind of like, she's going through it. And it's wow. Like you get it at the same time, you know, you're like, ah, oh, you wish it was better. But at the same time you get it because of food costs and kids are going to eat what they're going to eat and what's available. And it's a whole complicated thing, but. I've had many of the same kind of conversation with a lot of the chef friends too. Cause one, they're just like, why are you doing it? Two, I always think that kids deserve just as much as we do. And it starts then and nutrition starts then. No one taught me that when I was little. I wish someone would have gave me good food when I was little. Like I grew up on hot dogs and cottage cheese and crap. But like these kids, like today, I think my wife cooked uh, white bean and corn chili, cornbread. They each have to have a vegetable on top of that. Like these kids are eating real nice. <laughs> like it's not your run of the mill public school system trash. You know, it's impressive. And I've always admired Jesse Roby started these daycares and just wanted something better for kids when it came to the food and just like the quality of learning. Like I wouldn't say learning because it's daycare, but like how we treat the kids. It's been impressive to watch over these years. And I definitely recommend the Bear to schools, whoever could go or afford it. So yeah, it was a good time. I learned a lot and I've I've been on and off an employee for 10 years. So I get perks. I get to go to the Christmas party and they get over at Mirfield Village and it's been fun. Did you discover a secret to cooking for kids? Like, is there one, you know, I know you mentioned texture and maybe that is it, you know, focus on that or, or as somebody who not only has kids, but was also working at the Barrington School serving kids. Like, what did you discover that was like the easiest way to get a kid to like something that maybe they wouldn't be open to trying otherwise? Cook like you mean it. Don't just go through the motions. If anything, I've learned about kids, they're honest and they can feel everything. If you're upset and cooking and handing it to them, they're, they're just not going to have it, even if it's like the best thing in the world. So like cooking like they're not kids and cooking like you would, you just want to make somebody happy and don't stray away from seasoning. Kids deserve full flavored food. They can tell when you don't put the effort in for sure. If it's just like overcooked broccoli with no salt, they're going to be like, what the heck is this? But if it's like properly cooked broccoli, lots of water, lots of salt, they're going to enjoy it and they're going to love it. And that's what I learned is just cook with intent and cook properly. Moment you half-ass anything for a kid, they're going to know for sure. They'll find your weakness. So after you leave the country club, where do you go? I had a good friend call me up. It was Megan Atta, and she had asterisk. Supper Club and Ampersand Supper Club. 
saying that she needed a chef and she needed some help and the pandemic was starting to come back around and she just needed uh, some help at Astros. And I was like, I catered her wedding back in the day, um, just on the side, just, just always kept in touch with her. And I was like, you know what? Sure. I'll come. I was looking for a change. I was, and she offered it and I just jumped at it in both those restaurants. I have the utmost respect for Megan. She's the hardest working owner I've ever met in my whole entire life just hands down just six to seven days a week and she's stellar and then chef josh over an ampersand um an awesome chef he's probably one of the most consistent professional dudes when it comes to cooking i've ever met and i think uh he's doing good things over there and then my sous chef who took over for me desmond reed over at asterisk he deserves the world the kids are probably one of the best kids i've ever had underneath me for sure he's a just a genuine good kid. But that's how I started. It was just a phone call. And I was like, sure, I'll come on over. Came the, was a co-chef with um, a guy named Che who was there. Che Dyer, who is a, also a super talented chef. He's now a tattoo artist, but he worked for like Momofuku and just super talented dude. And then we started on a mission to just kind of make Astros a top destination instead of just a, a cool place in Westerville. And I think we did it. I mean, my original goal was to win a James Beard there, but two more kids that happened while I was there, time, me being that rock star chef wasn't one of those things I was able to keep up and put the hours in that Asterisk deserved for sure. So when you joined there, did you revamp the menu kind of, and it was just like fresh start for the restaurant? Because before it was kind of like pre-COVID, it was kind of also like a... I don't want to say tea house, but they had like a tea kind of program. Yeah, they still have tea from 11 to two o'clock is high tea. So it's little sandwiches, uh, tea service. They still do it. It was just kind of starting from scratch, getting a blank slate and making it more of like, a, like I said, instead of it being like the pot pie and meatloaf that Westerville was about kind of taking it to where it was a destination up in the game on plating flavor profiles, just that kind of thing. And we did it. I mean, just this year they were ranked both ampersand and asterisk were ranked in the top 10 best dinners and best lunches in town. So pretty proud of it for sure. So how'd you wind up at Emmett's joining them? A lot of factors, really. Desmond really was chomping at the bite to be an executive chef and I knew as long as I was there, I was going to hold him back. I also didn't feel like working 14-hour days anymore. And um, I reached out to Emmett's because they had an Indeed ad. And um, me and Ben started talking. He's the owner of Emmett's. And um, realized it fit kind of more what I wanted um, in this next chapter of my life. Because there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of things still to come with Emmett's that people haven't seen yet. Some dinner clubs and some nighttime events. and. Um, third possible concept coming as well it just filled that fire of starting from scratch open air it wasn't built yet and i was given the opportunity to like help design it see another aspect like going from just knowing the cooking now learning the numbers now there's this whole conceptualizing a concept and building it out and having a say in those kind of things that I hadn't done before. So it was like the next kind of evolution of what I wanted to do with my career. I was excited about it. 
So how much of the menu did you wind up changing? Because Emmett's, they had the brewery district location already by the time you joined. So you're part of the, the second location, but did you change much of the menu that was already existing or? Emmett's, when it opened, it had its staples. So there's certain things that like Ben, the owner, worked with a consultant and the opening team of things that his vision and things that mean something to him, like the TK sandwich is named after Thomas Kelly and just like the one-handed and the burrito. Everything else was kind of free go for me to adjust or move around as I needed to be. Just wanted to focus on making things better instead of streamlined. And then with open air, he wanted the menu to be double the size. So we had to come up with a bunch of extra and we now are changing the menu four times a year. So um, we'll have the spring menu coming out here in April, I think April 3rd, but there's a lot of change. Like we want to keep it kind of fresh and local. We don't want to keep serving strawberries in the dead of winter and stuff that just doesn't make sense. So I've had a all the say when it comes to the menu. So that's been pretty cool. You know, you join and obviously there's a staples that Ben wants to keep on the menu, but with free reign over everything else, how do you decide to take something that's existing off that isn't one of the protected dishes? Do you look at sales of it? Do you look at just general feedback? Like what is the first thing that you go to or like, yeah, I was thinking about removing this. And then you look and you're like, yeah, I can remove that. There's a lot of factors. First one is toast and margin edge programs that we use on the back end all the time. And these things give you all the data you could possibly want, kind of like what's selling, what's not. Then there's also the Ben aspect of it. Like if he really likes it or he doesn't, you always want to make sure that you're pleasing the guy who pays the bills. And then there's the aspect of how much backlash from a certain demographic I'll get if I take something off, which is always something that you always have to look into. And that's kind of the process I do is first, what isn't selling? What am I spending the most amount of money on, especially with the inflation and everything that's happened in our industry? You have to balance the cost of goods to pretty much why you have anything on your menu. And then whether or not Ben wants it or not wants it. And then last is just, will there be too many people I piss off? We do have a certain following and a lot of even though we don't consider ourselves super healthy, but we do have, like, we take the pride and we take the care and we do have good ingredients and we do give some healthy options. You do have to be conscious of that. Um, and I do respect that for those people who want those items on there. But I also like to balance, like, I love Ohio. I'm, you go to my Instagram page, I say Midwest Modern. I mean that to the fullest extent of my, my being. I got to give people also what they want. There's a reason why the burrito is the best selling thing on our menu. So is the burrito is the most popular thing? Yes, it accounts for a lot of sales for sure. I think uh, Ben said we sold 25,000 burritos last year. Uh, that's a lot of burritos. <laughs> so when the second location opens, it's a little bit different in concept because it's a bigger dining room, bigger menu. You have kind of the dine-in space, but you also have a, a carry-out kind of program, you know, to-go program that you can still get at the brewery district. But then there's also like a carry-out window. So what aspect was the most challenging to figure out at all that with the new location? Identity. A lot of people don't know that open air was supposed to be the original location, but it took so long to build. So they opened up the brewery district one, which is a lot smaller. Um, so just identity and not to confuse guests and kind of, we have this blank slate. What do we really want 
Emmett's to be? What are the possibilities? How can we take what we learned from the first Emmett's and make this the new and just as good, but amplified version of Emmett's? That was the toughest. And just kind of balancing all those things without losing what Emmett's is as a brand. I think we did a good job. Still some growth. Like I said, there's a lot of cool things coming with Emmett's. We're excited to keep moving forward. You kind of hinted at a couple of things that are in the works, one of which uh, potentially additional expansion without giving too much away. When you look at the playing field of similar concepts or concepts that fit in your category of breakfast, lunch, coffee, there's a handful. They're also expanding. The two target markets for pretty much anybody, I think that as soon as you look at expansion are probably going to be right now, the Dublin Bridge Park area and New Albany. When you look at that, Is that something that you go, well, let's look at those locations first because that's where the people are and that seems to be kind of where there's all these other businesses around, so there's going to be foot traffic? Or do you kind of decide to run counterculture and go, well, let's go where people aren't, where there's no other similar business, but there's still going to be foot traffic people can get here? So I can't speak for Ben when he's he's thinking of this. I will say that the Kelly companies, which is also one of Ben's companies, they like to go where people aren't and they like to take old buildings and breathe new life into them and kind of just stray away from the norm and kind of do things differently, not be part of the trend and kind of make their own path essentially. And that's kind of one of the biggest, most enjoyable things of working with Ben is it's like, it's, he's always looking, there's always room for the next step. And it's always going to be something that's, different and new to Columbus. He doesn't look at what Columbus already has and where it's going. He looks at what they don't have and what he would like them to have if he was traveling and notices something there. Kind of like a, I don't like to say Cameron Mitchell, but like a more avant-garde Cameron Mitchell where he's seeing concepts other places, but he's like, why don't we have something like that in Columbus? And if we do, how could we make it Columbus? I think that's kind of the mentality when we're looking forward in the future is not where everybody is going, but where it's needed. What's the hardest part about running multiple locations? Being everywhere at once. I mean, all the chefs and probably restaurateurs and everything on your podcast can probably attest to kind of the workforce the last five years and just having to manage consistency expectations between both places when you're one of the only ones recently got a really good addition to the team. His name's Nate. He's like a director of operations and beverage director, and he's super awesome. So that's been a huge help of um, not stretching it thin. Also with being a company that's only been open for the South High location, it's been two years. We just came up on a year at open air. We're still new and we're still ever evolving. And so it's fluid. So we don't have like that kind of structure that like North Star had where it's, we're trying to figure out how we want our management team, how we want our leadership team, how we want um, the culture, like it's ever growing and ever evolving. So that's been kind of the most difficult process of being just new and trying to figure out how to be everywhere at once and how to manage consistency while finding an identity all at the same time. Inflation's kind of replaced staffing as kind of the forefront within the industry. Has it affected you guys at all? Yeah, it's kind of the going to counter service mentality that we went because originally at open air, we were full service. 
We had servers go to the tables, that kind of thing. We had to adapt based on balancing cost of goods and labor out, just how it shakes out. And then trying to give people livable wages is also something we're passionate about and how we structure our pace at Emmett. But it also means that we have to have less people and they have to just hustle. It's something we've had to navigate quite a bit. You know, we're a breakfast restaurant, you know, there's a bunch of memes right now with eggs and eggs don't just affect eggs, mayonnaise, anything that's made with an egg, pastries. It's all went up tenfold. I remember the good old days of getting 15 dozen eggs through Premier Produce One for $18 for 15 dozen. Now they're $89 for 15 dozen. So it's it's a struggle for sure. I was doing some research and I think 2013, you were in the process of interviewing for Top Chef, I believe. How did that go? How far did you get? Where'd that wind up? I was going to be actually on the show, uh, but I had to back out because uh, my son was born premature, my first son, and I just had to be with my family. I kind of lucked out because the season I would have been on would have been with uh, the Votaggio brothers and just a bunch of stellar competition. I didn't want to embarrass Columbus. Yeah, I've always thought about going back to trying out for some competitions. I have that passion to compete. I think I'd do pretty well. We already have a few local guys, Avishar, and I think I could do it for sure. But yeah, I was going to be on the show. So cool process. So I did uh, film myself doing like, I think I braised short ribs and Dr. Pepper. And then I wrote, did the application. It was like 15 pages long, send everything in. And then they asked me to do a second tape that was a little more professional and showed a little more skill. (laughs) And I did that. And then they asked me for an in-person like, interview where I would um, cook at a restaurant and it happened to be the girl, the goat in Chicago. And I got to do like a film cooking interview, which was super cool. And then they were like, Hey, you're in the top 25, Um, make your final tape. Here's the parameters. And then my son was born and I said, sorry, got to duck out. Did they ever reach back out to you down the road and be like, Hey, would you still be interested, you know, coming on? Cause once, but I wasn't in a spot to, and I think once you turn them down, they're just, they got a, a million people filling out applications daily. I mean, I'm sure some of that comes down to who is still like, if they still have any of the same producers or casting people from that time period too, as well. Cause from somebody who's done similar things in terms of hiring and everything, as long as somebody doesn't have a giant red flag that was almost like on there, like you're going to go back to that well, because they're already vetted. Like you've already seen what they can do. Like, you know, you already know that they have what you need for them to be on the show. So instead of going through 200 fresh applications, which yeah, sure. You want some fresh eyes on some stuff, but if there's somebody that like just didn't make it because of extenuous circumstances like i'm going back to those people first at least a mix of like my new casting but that's me i'm obviously not involved with the show so i guess i could reach back out i just haven't been i should it's like my social media presence right now it sucks so it's uh i don't put the effort into that kind of thing Uh, i've never been the guy to like look for extra achievements i just kind of maybe i'd be more successful at this point it would have been a good time for sure So you've been in the food and restaurant industry here in Columbus for a number of years. How has it changed since you've been involved? What do you think still needs to change and where do you think it's headed? I would say it started off when I first came here back in the day, there was a few avant-garde places that wanted to try to like push farm to table or 
things outside the box, uh, vegan food, whatever. And they had a shelf life of six months. They like Columbus was never that place. Like I think I said before, it was always going to be a meat potatoes kind of place to me, no matter how much money it had. I can eat my words now because I feel like it's heading in a, a good trajectory. My one, I think the best restaurant in town right now, Commune, you know, making plant-based food and killing it. Like I would have thought 10 years ago when I was cooking in Columbus that that would have never been a thing. I think we were just going to be melts everywhere and just shitty processed food, but it's heading in a, a great spot. Like the amount of ramen places that have popped up in the last, you know, five years, my, one of my favorite foods of all time, I got robots giving me ramen, you know, down the street from my house. Like that's, I would have never thought about that. And so I, I'm very excited about where things are going and just super excited about the cloud kitchens and just different ways of eating chef andrew who has royce avenue just brilliant and like seeing those things kind of take off here in the city i think is amazing i had an indie chef dinner at columbus state not too long ago and like just that kind of thing coming here just speaks volumes for where we're going super jazzed about it so what's next for you professionally obviously you know you kind of tease some stuff with emmets but when your kids get older do you think that you'll kind of go back to pushing yourself to, you know, you mentioned wanting to get James Beard nominated at one point in your career, you know, you had the Top Chef thing, Midwest modern, you know, but you've messed around with Indian and Japanese and all these other different things that you've learned along the way. So, you know, do you think there'll come a point that you'll kind of jump back into the world of, you know, modern or fine dining elevated cuisine or? I'm with Emmett's for the long haul. I do want to test some of those things out with Emmett's. The cool thing about having a breakfast restaurant is that the restaurant is free from two o'clock on. Might see me popping in with some cool pop-ups throughout the months, maybe once a month, different events. I do want to tap back into my creative side while still doing this, like developing managerial, getting younger chefs on the right path. That's still, I'm doing that with Emmett's and I'm going to keep doing that for the long haul as long as Ben will have me. I do want to get into that creative side and maybe try out for another competition, show kind of the fine dining style that I have and do some pop-ups and some fun things. Um, I think it could be pretty successful at it and show this city kind of, I don't think James Beard is that the thing I'm going to do anymore. <laughs> it costs a lot of money and you have to have a lot of pull and I'm not that guy anymore. I do want to show the city kind of fun sides of what chefs can do in the city. And I think I could do that through pop-ups and kind of the way the culinary is going nowadays um, and have like featured chefs at Emmett's and feature dinners and stuff like that. And I think that's kind of the next cool, exciting path that we're going to lean into. Ben has a lot of connections as well. So it's um, there's a lot of fun things coming our way for sure. So this next question comes from previous guest on the podcast, Kevin DeShanes. He's a private chef out of Newport, Rhode Island. He left behind a question for you. What is an aha moment from your career? Food, experience, uh, just, you know, when you look back on your career, what is something that you can kind of point to? And it's like, oh, that, that was the moment that this changed for me. It was at the Gordon restaurant. One of the chefs, he was breaking down turbo flatfish he just wasn't doing the great job at it gordon said someone's got to watch yeah set a timer and he filleted it perfectly and did everything in a minute and a half and i was just like well there's chefs out there that are that quality what am i doing in my life <laughs> type of thing that was like one of the first like major 
aha moments like man i need to practice like i need to do better i need to come in earlier and learn that was kind of the first and biggest one for me what's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest could be anything if you could have a second act that wasn't a chef what would it be and why i always think it's curious to know what other chefs want we all love it and we all do it that's what we're going to do the rest of our lives but you know you always have those nights where you're drinking a lot of whiskey and you're like man i wish i was a movie star i wish i i would have kept being a stand-up comedian uh i always want to know what other creatives would do in there if they had another chance this next question comes from one of our listeners they wrote in how do you take your coffee if you are a coffee drinker I take a quad shot straight up, no cream, no sugar, no nothing, still hot, and I chug it. So this last set of questions we have, we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, nice compare and contrast across the episodes here. So looking back on your career, who would you say is the biggest influence, you know, the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far? In my path, the people who have guided me in my path, I would probably say here in town, it'd probably be Kent Rigsby. We've had so many talks on the side that kind of made me think about my profession a little more and what I want to do. My favorite chef of all time is Andre Chang and Heston Blumenthal. So those two are always there in like teachings and reading, but in my actual life, I would have to say Kent. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? My spoon. I always have a spoon for plating, sauces, tasting. Just a good quality spoon is my it's my second hand, I guess, or my third hand. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So situation I usually give, person gets stuck at the airport, flight gets canceled, they're stuck in town. They reach out to you, hey, where should we go eat? You guys are closed. You point them in this direction. I'd say, uh, I really, I, I said it before, commune. I love commune. If it was similar food to us or like similar time of day, I would say Abishar's place up in Worthington. I think that that just flavors he packs in. I would say that if it was a similar like lunch and breakfast type of place. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So any place you haven't traveled to yet, but you still want to go. Any restaurant you haven't dined at, but you still want to eat at one day. It's closing after this year, but Noma, I've, I've pretty much eaten every restaurant see all my books but i have like a bunch of menus from all the restaurants i've eaten at pretty much the whole top 50 and that's the one place i haven't eaten bucket list place i'd like to go to like antarctica or antarctica somewhere i've never been just that not many people get to go craziest thing you've seen in a restaurant while you're working so when I was young, I told you growing up in like my mom's hospitality firm, I did see I was at a big boy and the fry cook was smoking on the line. This is back in the early 90s. And this guy's like just ashing into the fryer and be like, it's OK, son. And I think like, this is what I'm getting myself into. Food or drink guilty pleasure. Is there anything fast food, candy, whatever that, you know, is unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself? Kraft mac and cheese. Um, but the shapes. It can't be like the regular noodles. It's got to be like SpongeBob or, you know, the new LeBron James Space Jam. Whiskey drinking. I, that's my guilty pleasure. I like a good, I like whiskey. Like I like life. It sucks at first, but then it feels great going down. So I get a good like Booker's or something that's at least 120 proof. And that's my guilty pleasure. So you got a bunch of cookbooks. What's the one cookbook that everyone should own? Whether they're a professional chef, just an at-home chef. I know it's cliche and it's played out, but I would say uh, French Laundry. 
big plot blanching and just the basics, man. That's every chef should know and get inspired by that book. To me, that's, that's it. I mean, I have a lot mainly from the best restaurants and actually have a first edition of a James Beard book with his actual signature in it. So yeah, I would say that that one's it or Heston Blumenthal fat duck cookbook is also one of those ones that can't really go without. He's just a genius. So favorite dish thing you ever cooked, created, you know, looking back on your career, you can kind of point to this dish when you made it as like the time that you knew you could be a professional chef. Cello Gordon's restaurant. I had to come up with a chef's table for chef Morimoto and I made a few dishes. One was a scallop dish with salsa fee and ended up being on the menu after that. And I would say that, that I was new. I was like, Hey, maybe I'm cut out for this shit. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is or was, but if you were, is there a moment episode scene about him that stands out to you still to this day? Or if you weren't, is there anybody else who was on TV, a culinary personality that was Emerald, a Jacques Pepin, a Julia Child, somebody who was just on TV that you kind of gravitated towards when you were coming up through your career? I do love Anthony Bourdain. I think he's a badass. My favorite moment was, I think that there was a uh, interview with Marco Pierre White um, about consistency and how to get a Michelin star. And he gave this kind of long thing about how there's no emotion in the kitchen and consistency and dedication and sacrifice is what makes a great chef. One of my favorite moments in celebrity chef history. I like Marco Pierre White because he had a hand in making uh, Anthony Bourdain and Gordon Ramsay and pretty much anybody you think of when you think of celebrity chefs, he started them out. So uh, that would probably be my moment. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, all that stuff. Plug away. Chef John Hallman is my Instagram. Like I said, I'm working on it. Uh, I'm not the biggest presence, but I look to build that up for sure. And then you'll find me at Emmett's Cafe, um, Emmett'sCafe.com, Emmett's at Instagram, both locations. That's it for now. And you guys are open seven days a week, right? Yeah, seven days a week. Right now we're open seven to two on the weekdays eight to three on the weekends, spring and summer are coming up patio season. So those might extend and then maybe some nighttime things coming forward, surprise you with some things. Like I said, we got to check out the open air restaurant location for the first time. It's a cool space. I can definitely see a good space for pop-ups there, uh, the way it's designed and laid out and everything. And then the the brewery district location, we frequented a bunch, you know, it was weird, you know, when we were living in the brewery district for not like three years, like there was really no coffee place like around. I mean, you had Pistachio Vera up a couple streets, but that was kind of like the only one them and Stoffs. And then finally, like, you know, Emmett's opened and it was like, all right, we got another place. that's like got coffee, but Pistachio Vera has kind of pastries and desserts and Stoffs just basically has coffee. And then it was finally like another place that, oh, there's sandwiches. And then they actually also have a lunch menu and, and they hosted a couple pop-ups there too, as well, I think too, as well. So it's always been delicious food and, and good coffee. Well, that's Ben's philosophy. He's, he's always went to coffee shops and viewed them as like, you either get good food and shitty coffee or good coffee and shitty food. It's like, you can't have both. And it's like his mission to kind of have good food and good coffee. So we can hope to continue that and pop up a few more for sure. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. I was taking some time of your evening here. I'll let you get back to the family and everything, but um, definitely stay in touch. Always an open invitation. Come back on the podcast. Uh, you guys roll out a new menu or doing pop-ups or new location or whatever. 15, 20 minutes. You guys want to talk about it. 
always a standing invitation for anybody that uh, comes on and supports us. So uh, we want to support everybody as much as we can, but um, you know, we'll be seeing you over at Emmett's uh, either during the day or nighttime. That's been awesome. Thank you very much. A big thanks again to John for coming on the podcast, taking some time in his evening to chat about, you know, his career, how he wound up in Columbus, working with Emmett's kind of future plans and all that stuff too, as well. So again, you could follow him on Instagram at chef John Hallman. Also follow Emmett's at Emmett's Cafe. You could follow us too as well at Spoon Mob. Make sure to check out our website, spoonmob.com, for additional information on guests, um, links to different episodes, all that stuff. And then also make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. Uh, if I sound funny for the next handful of episodes, uh, I've been sick for the past, I don't know, like a week and a half, something like that. Just a uh, cold or whatever from uh, the daycare. So those are a different breed of germs, unfortunately. <laughs> and they're a lot stronger and more potent um, than the usual ones, I guess. So if I sound like uh, swallowed a frog or something in some of the episodes, uh, I'm fine. I'm still healthy. It's just uh, going through and working through all that uh, viral stuff and everything. So appreciate everybody listening. Continue to help support us by uh, spreading the word. You wind up at a restaurant or you know business featured on here, make sure to let them know that you heard about them on the Spoon Mob podcast. Uh, that always helps remind everybody that uh, them coming on the podcast is worth their time and that it is reaching people too as well. We're continuously growing, you know, month over month, year over year. So it's always trending in the right direction, which is awesome to see. So appreciate you guys for continuing to help spread the word and continuing to do so. Uh, we always get, you know, great feedback from everybody. People write in and stuff. So it's always awesome to see. And feedback from people that have come on the podcast about their experience too as well has always been great. So, you know, that's always awesome to hear that, you know, they enjoyed their time and it's a different interview. It's kind of unlike anything they've ever done before and since. And that's always nice to hear just because we try not to be very generic and some stuff you have to touch on, you know, just because you have to. Uh, there are some questions that we ask that are kind of a little bit more basic, but we really try to get into the, the nitty gritty and the, you know, stuff that really makes somebody tick and why they're doing what they're doing. So um, that's just kind of what we aim for. That's it for this week. New episode next week on Thursday, then some mini update episodes after that. But if you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support. We will talk to you guys next week.